give just a moment if anyone needs one of the uh, sheets to take notes for the afternoon discussion or just for your own benefit feel free to raise your hand and we can get you one of those okay all right uh, last week we saw Isaiah call the people of Judah to fear God according to his word the people of Judah especially King Ahaz who was wicked mostly ignored Isaiah's warnings yet there would still be hope after Israel was destroyed, after Judah was destroyed, after Assyria was destroyed, after Babylon was destroyed, God would not abandon his people. He would keep a remnant of the people alive throughout all of this chaos. He would raise up a perfect leader, the complete opposite, far superior to wicked Ahaz, even greater than Hezekiah, the one that we meet later in the book of Isaiah, and we've seen some in the Sunday school hour, even greater than Isaiah himself, though he was a righteous prophet. The one to come would be a child, uh, memorialized in the well-known Hallelujah Chorus, these words, unto us a son is born, point to no human king, but rather to Jesus himself. Like Isaiah 7.14, these words cannot be fulfilled truly by any human child or human ruler. They demand a perfect ruler. But if we only focused on 9.1 through 7, we would lose, I think, much of what Isaiah is talking about. And he holds out these brief glimpses of hope. Here's how God is going to deliver his people and sustain them through all the destruction that is coming because of their idolatry, their rebellion against God. And so the main message of this passage, I think, is not so much just that glimpse of Jesus who is to come and rule and reign, but rather this idea that God preserves a remnant through judgment. God preserves a remnant through judgment. And what will this remnant look like? This remnant is going to be a people who follow the root of Jesse as they praise his mercy. And we'll see those as we continue, particularly getting to chapters 11 and 12. Let's begin here, though, in Isaiah 9, where we see the first contrast between the darkness in which Judah finds herself and the light which is to come. The main idea, I think, here from the end of chapter 8 into the first part of chapter 9 is this. God shows mercy to those he punishes, even as the light shines in darkness. God shows mercy to those he punishes. When he, I say punish, the reason that they were in this great difficulty is because they had abandoned God's word. We saw this at the end of last week with verses 19 through 22 of chapter 8. And I just want to review those with you because they're kind of transitional. They went with last week, but they also go with this week. And here's the main point of those verses. When God's people abandon God's word, they bring disaster upon themselves. We can think that it will not happen to us as it has happened to other people. That when God says things like, um, God's people and unbelievers have no fellowship together, and sometimes we're even careless in the way we talk about it. We say, oh, I had good fellowship with that person. Well, was that person Christian? No. Well, you didn't really have fellowship with them. You could have had a good meal, good conversation, all those sorts of things. Uh, we think, well, if I ignore God's wisdom about all these other kinds of things, then it's going to turn out differently for me than it has for all these other people. But these verses make it very clear. For example, verse 19, when they were consulting mediums and spiritists, trying to commune with the dead and listen to of prophecy from demons, they thought that was going to give them safety and security and, and fix all of their problems, and just like it failed for all the generations before them, it failed for the people of Israel as well, and those of Judah. And so Isaiah admonished them to return to God's word. Now, we do see that briefly for a while. Um, Isaiah speaks during the reigns of Uzziah, 
Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, but mostly we see emphasized during the reigns of those last two kings. Isaiah speaks to King Ahaz and says, ask God for a sign. Ahaz in pride says, I don't want to test God, though his whole life has been testing God. The people Isaiah also addresses in Isaiah chapter 8, repent and turn back to God. Most of that generation doesn't seem to listen, but when Hezekiah becomes king, uh, some years later, the son of Ahaz, he reinstitutes this reform, and many of the people seem to turn back to God. So we see that briefly under the reign of Hezekiah, and then it gets way worse under Hezekiah's son and grandson and, and those who are eventually defeated and carried away to Babylon. But this idea, when people abandon God's word, they bring disaster upon themselves. There's also an interesting parallel of what we're going to see in verse nine, chapter 9, verse 1, Isaiah is addressing the people of Jerusalem and Judah. And God is punishing the people of the northern tribes of Israel. But who listens in Isaiah's day? Well, as we saw from some of the historical sections uh, in a, a few weeks ago from 2 Kings and Chronicles, the people of the northern tribes of Israel briefly say, hey, we shouldn't be carrying our fellow Israelites into captivity. That doesn't please God. We're going to listen to the voice of the prophet at the same time that Ahaz is leading the people of Judah into destruction. In Jesus' day, hundreds of years later, the people of Jerusalem and Judah largely reject the message of Jesus and the apostles, and the people that believe are these outcasts of the northern tribes of Israel, the remnants who have intermarried with the Assyrians in the northernmost part of Israel, up near Galilee. And we'll see that more in just a moment. God shows mercy after judgment to his people, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. These one who are despised, who appear to be forever under God's judgment, they are the ones who are going to receive hope when God sends deliverance. When does God treat the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt? Because of their idolatry, because of their rejection with him, of him, God is going to, that's where the, the invasion of the Assyrians is going to start, in the northernmost part of the land and work its way down. They're going to bear the brunt of the wrath of the king of Assyria in this conquest. And yet, Matthew quotes this same passage in reference to the ministry of Jesus because Jesus goes, is from Galilee, ministers in Galilee, and brings and offers this light and hope to people who had no reason to expect it. The people of Israel, by comparison, had been a lot more wicked for a lot longer period of time. The people of Judah, though they weren't great and often practiced idolatry, had these periods where they were following God, and yet God is going to offer this hope to the people in the northern part of Israel generations later. This mercy would come through the perfect Davidic ruler. No human king can fulfill these words, particularly in verses 6 through 7. So when would we look to see chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 fulfilled? At a time where there is great rejoicing and God holds out mercy to restore the people of Israel? And who is going to bring this about? One who is described in verse 6 as wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, ruler of an everlasting kingdom. God's zeal will accomplish this. Clearly it doesn't happen immediately around the time when Isaiah is giving this prophecy. Because what's happening at this time? Assyria is marching through Israel, conquering the whole land, carrying them off into captivity. So they're not receiving hope and deliverance at that point. What about a few generations later? Is, is, is that the case? And I think we'd have to say even a few generations later, it's still not the case. Though God preserves Judah for another hundred years or so, 
the northern tribes never really have this restoration back to the land like we see happening with the Babylonian captivity and the people coming back and rebuilding the temple and the wall and all those sorts of things. The northern tribes never really return. So as best I read the scriptures and as best we look at what happens in the history of God's people, this promise has not yet been fulfilled. There is not this exuberant joy pervading all of God's people Israel. There is not one who comes, sits on the kingdom, rules and remains, and there is no end to his kingdom. Now, the one who is going to do that, has he come? Yes, in, in Jesus Christ has come. But, as we see more clearly as we read the second part of Isaiah, he comes first as the suffering servant, and he will come yet again as the righteous ruler who rules eternally. So, God offers this mercy and deliverance for those who had been under his punishment, had been under his judgment. Through Christ, we see that there is an opportunity for deliverance for them. We see furthermore, as we go through chapter 9, and the, the, the feeling, the tone of the chapter definitely changes, starting with verse 8, this idea that God's judgment is always just. Why is God punishing his people? Well, chapter 8 and 9 and 10, in pride, they're ignoring God's warnings. God had said to them way back in Deuteronomy and even in Leviticus and Exodus, if you turn away from me, I'm going to send nations to attack you, to arrest your attention and turn your hearts back to me. So what was happening? The Philistines are attacking them from the west, the Syrians from the east, and then the Assyrians come down from the north. And this was supposed to cause the people of Israel to say, hey, we are sinning against God. The reason that this disaster is coming upon us is because we're sinning against God. We should turn back to him. But they proudly ignored God's warnings. For example, verse 10. The bricks fell down, but we will rebuild them with smooth stones. The sycamores cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Hey, our wall got knocked down, we'll build it again. Maybe not as good, but it'll still be our wall. Hey, these great trees that were tall and majestic have been cut down. We're going to replace them with even better trees. And in their pride, they thought that they could resist God's purpose. So what was God's response? God sent enemies from Syria and Philistia. So Syria, verse 11, Rezin uh, is one of the leaders there in Syria. And so he sends from them. And verse 12, the Arameans on the east and the Philistines on the west. They devour Israel with gaping jaws. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. And so we see that phrase sort of punctuating these sections of Israel's continued rebellion. They ignore God's warnings, so he sends the Syrians, he sends the Philistines against them. They continue to ignore God, so he says, you know what? You are hoping in these wicked leaders, false prophets, lying leaders who oppress the people and go their own way and lead them further into sin, so I'm going to cut them off. Verse 14, the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel. The head is the elder and honorable man. The prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. What characterize these false prophets, these wicked leaders? Uh, they bring them to confusion, and they lead them astray. So the prophets are saying things that God had not said to say. They're, they're lying to the people. Everything's fine. You'll be okay. Those sorts of things. And the leaders, instead of teaching them God's word and how to follow after God, 
The leaders are teaching them the way of oppression like all the pagan rulers around them. How can I take as much as I want from the people who are most vulnerable to uh, help myself out? And in fact, verse 17 even seems to intensify this to parallel what we see, for example, in Genesis chapter 6. God sends the flood to judge the earth because every thought of man's heart is evil continually. And here he says, every one of them is godless and an evildoer. Every mouth is speaking foolishness. And so it says, God does not take pleasure on their young men, nor have pity on their orphans or their widows, because everyone is pervasively wicked and evil in the land of Israel. Then God carries out his judgment by turning the Israelites against each other in disunity. He says, wickedness burns like a fire, verse 18, consuming briars and thorns. It even sets the thickets of the forest aflame, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. And then he says, by the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up. The people are like fuel for the fire. No man spares his brother. So he has this picture. Wickedness is like a fire, and it consumes all of these things. But then he says, it's the fury of the Lord. So what's he saying? He's saying God is using the wickedness of the people to bring about their own destruction. They have abandoned God, gone their own, own way, refused his warnings, and so God is letting them go their own way and their wickedness is consuming them. And this turns them against one another. Uh, he says at the end of verse 19, no man spares his brother. They slice off what is on the right hand but are still hungry, and they eat what is on the left hand but they're not satisfied. He's saying the picture here is like someone that is so starving that they're willing to cut off their own hand and eat it so they don't die, but they're still hungry and starving. You are turning against your fellow tribes, your brothers of the Israelites, and you're fighting one another and you're destroying each other, and it's not going to satisfy you, it's not going to help you. The reason for all this destruction and all these problems is because you've turned away from God. Manasseh devours Ephraim, Ephraim, Manasseh, together they are against Judah. And so we see an echo of verse 18, I think, in uh, James' picture where he talks about the tongue, a small spark, setting a fire, setting a flame, the forest, and, and containing a world of iniquity. And so if we were to make an application of this passage to the present day, I think it would be something like this. Disunity is often, if not always, a picture of us living in disobedience to God. Why is God so concerned about unity in the context of his church? Why is God so concerned about what we say? James says, out of the same fountain comes forth blessing and cursing. It shouldn't be this way. Why is God so concerned about those things? Because those things are symptoms of problems of disobedience against God. So if you come to church, for example... And you say, here's this problem I got with somebody else in the church. And here's the bad things I'm going to say about this person. And all of those sorts of things. And then you say, I'm going to sing the hymns. And I'm going to share people with people some verse that I've read. And all these sorts of things. You see the problem? Just like for the Israelites, they're physically attacking each other so they can steal territory and try to protect themselves from their enemies. We today can have that same attitude and the, the disunity and the bad speaking about one another is not the root problem, but it's a symptom of a root problem, which is disobedience to God. And so the reason that I emphasize this is we tend to look at the people of Israel and say, ah, oh, these people over there long ago, they're so terrible, they made all these stupid decisions, I'm nothing like them. And I'm just trying to show you the connections between the admonitions that are for us in the New Testament and the admonitions that Isaiah had for the people of his day.
And this section wraps up at the end of chapter 9 with God's anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. So they go from God gives them little warnings. You start losing battles against your enemies. Not going to listen to God, going to go our own way. Your leaders start to fail. The false prophets die. The false leaders are cast down. Still not going to listen. You start turning against one another and destroying your own people. Still not going to listen. God describes even further the nature of their wickedness at uh, chapter 10, and we see that uh, God judges them because of their injustice and that there will be no escape for these things. Woe to those who enact evil statutes and those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that widows may be their spoil and they may plunder the orphans. What will you do now in the day of punishment and the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. Now there are people who would twist what Isaiah says here and make it sound like that the main and only issue is fixing issues like poverty and oppression. What I think we need to recognize is that Poverty and oppression are not the ultimate problems that we have in our society, but they are symptomatic of the root problem that we have is people going their own way and rejecting God. So what this means is, when you see an instance of injustice and oppression, what should you see there? You should see evidence that people are going their own way and rejecting God. And our secular society says, well, we just need to fix the injustice and oppression and everything will be better. But you're never going to fix the injustice and the oppression apart from people being brought into proper fellowship with God and following after Him because the reason people do injustice and oppress one another is because they're living selfishly and wickedly and not following after God. God says there are people who are enacting evil statutes, bad laws, recording unjust decisions, perverting justice in the context of their court systems. To what end? to take away justice from the needy, to rob the poor of their rights, so that widows are their spoil, they may plunder the orphans. So when you see a governmental system or people in positions of power who are going after those who are most vulnerable because they're easy targets, that is symptomatic of the problem, but it is not the problem. Why do we see examples of that in our society today? Because by and large, our nation has abandoned God. And we're not going to fix it by fixing the laws. People are like, oh, if we fix the laws, we'll fix it. If we fix the courts, we'll fix it. If we fix the people who enforce the laws, we'll fix it. None of that is going to fix it because the root problem is people's evil hearts that are in rebellion against God. So what do those people need? They need us to do what Second, uh, 1 Timothy 2 says, which is to pray for leaders and all those who are in positions of power that God might bring them to repentance. And like I said last week, there's going to be a strong push over the next eight, nine months for us to get really worked up about political things, right? Who's right about Ukraine? Who's right about Supreme Court justices? Who's right about this, that, and the other thing, right? And we're going to get dragged into that if we're not careful, and we're going to have opinions on things that we probably don't know a whole lot about, 
And what we need to do instead is say the problem, the reason that there is this chaos in our world, the reason that America is broken and all the nations of the world are broken is because people need to turn to God. God brought destruction on Israel and on Judah because of their rebellion and their idolatry. God brings chaos into nations today because of their rebellion and their idolatry. And the solution is not to fix all the little symptoms that sort of trickle down and we see in an everyday basis. The solution is for God's word to be proclaimed by God's people so that those people's hearts can turn to God. And to pray for God to do that work, because you can tell the gospel of people all day long, not one of them are going to turn to God until God does a work in their hearts. Israel deserved God's judgment. But Assyria, too, also ends up deserving God's judgment. God will even judge those he has previously used. And so we see this in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 10. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. Why? What's wrong with the Assyrians? Didn't God say, basically, go punish the Israelites? Yes. I mean, the king of Assyria's representative, as we saw in Sunday school, even said something to this effect. Hey, we're aware God's sending us to punish the Israelites. So, why is God mad at the Assyrians? Or why is God punishing the Assyrians after he punishes the Israelites when they did what he said? Because they didn't stop with punishing the Israelites like God told them to do. They go on and they say, hey, I've conquered Israel and I've conquered Syria. Now I'm going to go conquer Judah and Philistia and Egypt and all these other nations. And God had said, here's how far you can go and no further. And the Assyrians said, no, we'll get to decide that, God. And so Isaiah has these illustrations of, of the foolishness of this uh, a little bit later. But here it's basically this idea of they're doing what God said they would do. Chapter 6 Capture, spoil, seize, plunder. That goes back to chapter 8, right? Um, so 10.6 goes back to 8, 1 through 4. What does Isaiah name his son? Swift, plunder, speedy, prey. What do the Assyrians come and do? Swift, plunder, speedy, prey. But the problem was not what they did so much as the fact that they're now going to extend it to places that God did not send them. Assyria was supposed to humble Israel, but Assyria plotted to conquer many nations, including Judah, which God had not commanded. Quick point of application for us. Um, we often think that because God's used us in the past, or we've served God for some portion of our lives, that we can just sort of coast. Or we can go do something else that's not pleasing to God because we've got all of this, tenure is not the right word, but all this past history with God where we've done the things that he wants us to do. And the reality is that the Christian life is not something where we sort of coast on past accomplishments. Or we say, well, I did good then, I can do whatever I want now. The Assyrians did what God wanted for a time, and God was behind what they were doing. But when they said, we're going to go beyond that, we're going to do this other thing that you've not told us to do, God punished them as well. So we think that we're insulated sometimes because we say, well, you know, here's all the good things I've already done for God in the course of my life. And I would urge you, the older that you get, the more you're potentially going to be tempted to just say, I'm just going to sit back. I'm just going to relax. Here's all the good things I used to do. I don't need to worry about those now. Or here's all the good things I used to do. I can sin a little bit now because I sort of built up credit with God. Learn from Assyria. Don't think that past accomplishments or past obedience is an excuse for current laziness or current disobedience. 
So chapter 9 into chapter 10, what do we see? Israel deserved God's judgment. Their rejection of God's word would plunge them into darkness. Yet even their enemies, the Assyrians, would not rule in pride for very long. For God's judgment would fall on that wicked nation as well. God accomplished at least two purposes by judging Assyria. First, he humbles Assyria's pride. And second, by destroying Judah's ally, the people could no longer look to Assyria for help against their enemies, only to God instead. And so if the first point is this idea that God shows mercy to those he punishes in chapters 9 through 10, particularly at the beginning of chapter 9, the second idea is this. God destroys all hopes that he might be our only hope. God destroys all hopes that he might be our only hope. We see this in chapter 10, starting in verse 20. God had delivered his people in the past, and he is going to do that again. We see that in verses 20 through 27. And um, prophecy is challenging because there's this tension of trying to identify, has it been fulfilled, when is it going to be fulfilled, all of those sorts of things. And I think we have to recognize that while I think one prophecy has one reference, there are, um, there are definitely parallels that take place at various points throughout history. So let me illustrate that from what we looked at last week. Last week, we saw this prophecy that there would be a, a young woman with child called Emmanuel and all of those sorts of things. That Isaiah 7.14, that verse that's often held up because of the way that Matthew quotes it in Matthew 1.23 to refer to Jesus. And I do think Isaiah 7.14 refers to Jesus. But I think the verses right after 7.14 are fulfilled by Isaiah's son. Before this child is old enough, these kings will be destroyed. I think that's fulfilled by Isaiah's son. And I think in, in Ahaz, the wicked king's son, Hezekiah, we also have a picture of Jesus, and all of these things are, are appearing. God's using them in the life of, of Ahaz and in the life of the people of Judah to point them to the future king, Jesus, who is going to come and reign. In a similar way, we see in verses 20 through 27 this idea of a remnant, this idea of complete destruction, and in verses 24 through 27, this idea of God's deliverance. Now, when it says in verse 20, they will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, does that take place in the time of Isaiah? I think we have to say no, because even though the people follow God for a while under Hezekiah, and even though some of the people of Israel probably repented when the Assyrians came in and conquered them, there is not a unified turning to God and a full repentance that persists. Because as soon as Hezekiah dies, the people go back to worse idolatry than, than before. And of the people of, of Israel, we have no record of, of most of them turning to God. So when does this take place? Does it take place in Jesus' day? Well, we know the problem of idolatry is largely solved by then. The, the Israelites have kind of learned their lesson. And they said, we're not going to go back there anymore. So they've moved on from idolatry to things like spiritual pride and hypocrisy. But they don't pursue idols anymore. Do they fully rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel? I think we'd have to say no. So when is this actually fulfilled? I think this tied in with what we see in Isaiah 11 is ultimately fulfilled in some of the end times events that take place when God 
turns many, these huge numbers of people of the Israelites to believe in him, delivers them from their enemies who rise up from every nation and sort of converge on Israel, but God defeats his enemies, right, at these great battles that we see in the book of Revelation. Do we see any, not fulfillment per se, but parallels of, of this protection and this destruction and this deliverance in Isaiah's day? I think we have to say yes. God tells them that he's going to preserve a remnant. We've seen this here. We see this, for example, um, at the end of um, uh, in, in chapter 8, this idea of a remnant. We saw it even earlier in the book. I don't have the references in front of me right at the moment. This idea of remnant is woven all throughout the book of Isaiah. So this idea that God's going to preserve some of his people, despite the wickedness of most of them, is throughout the book. So we do see that even in Isaiah's day. Do we see uh, this idea of destruction? Absolutely. Is it the sort of destruction we see described in the book of Revelation? No. But is it great and terrible destruction? Yes. Conquest by your enemies and a lot of people being carried off into captivity. All this is terrible destruction and, and a great disaster. What about deliverance? Verses 24 through 27. When he says, don't fear the Assyrian, my indignation will shortly be spent and my anger directed to their destruction. Do we see this in Isaiah's day? I think we do, at least to some extent, when the king of Assyria comes against Jerusalem with this huge army to conquer it, what does God do? God sends the angel of the Lord to kill off the entire army with a plague. Verse 26, the Lord of hosts will arise, arouse a scourge against him and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. So I think here, just like God had Moses stretch out his staff over the Red Sea, it's as though God is stretching out his staff over this army that's come up like a flood and is destroying them. And just like God caused the Midianites to destroy themselves in Gideon's day when God delivered them, God is going to destroy this army that's come up against Israel. But look at the fascinating picture here. The Assyrian strikes you with the rod, but his rod's going to be broken. I'm going to figuratively stretch out my staff, and I'm going to deliver you as I did in the days of Moses. And so we see here that God's deliverance should produce faith. Chapter 10, verse 20. They will not rely on the one who struck them, Assyria and these other nations, but will rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Only a few would believe and be preserved through God's righteous flood of judgment. We see this in verses 21 through 23. And I think that remnant heeds God's warning to reject foreign allies as their hope and be reminded of God's past deliverance from those very allies who long ago had been their enemies. It was foolishness on the part of the Israelites to ally themselves with Egypt because Egypt was the ones who has enslaved them and tried to kill them off. It was foolish for them to ally themselves with Syria and with Assyria because they had been their enemies as well. And so God is using all of these circumstances to turn their trust away from these alliances to God himself. Furthermore, we see that at the height of pride, those who come against God's people will be struck down by God himself. Assyria comes with speed and fury, chapter 10, verses 28 through 32. Come against Iath, pass through Migron, at Michmash he deposited his baggage. And he comes closer and closer and closer. Verse 32, he shakes his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. It's this swift attack down through the land of Israel. And now they're at the gates of Jerusalem. What's going to happen? God will strike down Assyria. 
The Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the bowels with a terrible crash. Those who are tall in stature will be cut down. Those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. God will strike down Assyria. Most likely this is a prophecy of God's deliverance of Hezekiah in Isaiah 36 and 37. We also see it in 2 Kings 18 and 19 and 2 Chronicles 32. God's going to deliver Jerusalem from the threat of the Assyrians. And then God is going to deliver his people again in future days through the branch, the root of Jesse. We see this in chapter 11. And this goes back as well to Isaiah chapter 4. Though God cuts down the pride of man, he exalts the righteous heir of David to rule in justice. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. This shoot, this root of Jesse is going to be a twig, a small branch coming forth from the seemingly dead stump of David's line. So it's as though... David and his heirs, all the kings of Israel and Judah, it's as though they're this great mighty tree and it's cut down in God's judgment, but it's not dead. And there's going to be this green shoot come forth from that stump that grows into a great tree. That's a picture of Jesus. We see this applied to Jesus, several of these verses in the New Testament. For example, we could see verse 2, this idea of the spirit of wisdom and understanding, I think echoed in Luke 2.52, where it says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. The great wisdom with which he uh, astounded the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day. Where did this carpenter learn all these things? That sort of thing. We see, for example, this idea of the righteous judgment of the nations. When we get over to the book of Revelation, he's going to judge the nations with a rod of iron. He's going to accomplish fairness and justice for all the peoples of the earth. And so chapter 11 is pointing to Jesus and his ministry, some of which we see in the New Testament and some of which we look forward to even in days future to ours. We see that the entire pattern of creation is going to be restored in those days. Though the world is now filled with war and chaos, the root of Jesse is going to bring peace. The wolf's going to lie down with the lamb, the leopard with the young goat, and all of these things. Uh, a child will be able to lead wild animals without fear of harm in verses 6 uh, through 9, and even war will cease. And this goes back uh, as well to what we saw in chapter 2, verse 4. And though some now reject God's ruler, Ahaz, because he was wicked. Some rejected Jesus because he was humble. All in these future days will rally to this perfect ruler. In that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples. His resting place will be glorious. Which I think goes back to chapter 9, verse 1. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who remain Assyria, in Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the islands of the sea. He will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west 
They will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab, and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. He will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind and strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day they came up out of the land of Egypt." And so like a flag in battle, the branch, the rod, the tree, Jesus will be exalted above the nations. The remnant will be gathered from among the nations. In unity, these dispersed tribes will gather together. They will plunder their ancient enemies. And God will even reshape the very earth to accomplish these purposes as he did long ago in Egypt. Then it was the Red Sea. This time it will be the Nile River of Egypt that he will strike so his people can walk across on dry land and regather in this land that he had promised to them. Isaiah tells us about a lot of stuff that is still yet future from our perspective. But he also talks about things that were going to take place very shortly in Isaiah's day. God was going to destroy Assyria that Judah might trust in him alone. God was going to exalt his ruler, Jesus, so that no other might be worshipped in the final days of the earth. If God delivers then sinful people like Judah and Israel from their enemies, both at that time And since then, and in future days to come, what response should they have? What response should we have? And that's what chapter 12 is. Praise the Lord for his mercy. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. How would we summarize that? God is angry with sinners and yet he forgives them. On what basis? Well, as we see from the New Testament, because of the work of the root of Jesse, of Jesus Christ himself, God is able, and God in fact does, forgive people's sin when they turn to him. When the people of Judah turn to him, like Hezekiah turns to him for deliverance from the Assyrians, God heard Hezekiah's prayer, and God delivered him. When we turn from our sin, to God for deliverance from that sin, God hears our prayer and God forgives us as well. When does God do this? When he saves them. Verse 2 of chapter 12, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. I think this is anticipated in Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well and all these other sorts of things. But God forgives sinners. God provides salvation. What's the proper response then? Verses 4 through 6. In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Save sinners, praise the Holy One, and call for others to join in. Consider your life. What do you trust in? So we saw last week there are many things that we might trust in. Our schemes, our skills, our wisdom, our power, our money, all of these things. But none of these things bring the joy that is described in this passage for those that God delivers. Jeremiah says similarly in Jeremiah 9, let no one boast in all of these things that we tend to trust in, but boast that you understand and know the Lord. So why then does God take Judah through all this trouble? Clearly because they're sinners, but that's a simplistic answer. 
God takes sinful Judah through destruction after putting sinful Israel through the same sort of destruction and casting down Assyria in between those two points in order that God's people Judah would turn wholeheartedly to him. God's vision for making this happen is profound and astounding. He would provide the perfect ruler when all human rulers had failed, when the people had turned aside, when it seemed like there was no possible way that anyone from Israel or Judah would be preserved through this great destruction, particularly as it comes to the terrible events of the end times, God raises up his perfect ruler in Jesus Christ. So where do you see yourself in this story? Do you, like the people of Zebulun and Naphtali, way back at chapter 9, verse 1, feel despised and rejected by God? It may be because you are loving sin and God will not let you rest in it. Maybe you need to start trusting Jesus for the very first time, or maybe you need to return to him because you've wandered away even though you already know him. It may be that there is no specific sin that God is punishing you for, as in this passage, but is rather purifying your faith. There are people like Isaiah who are following God in the midst of all these things, and they don't, in a sense, deserve what's happening to the nation as a whole. But even as God is punishing and seizing the attention of the nation through these great and terrible events, God is also purifying and testing the faith of those like Isaiah. Are you going to continue to follow me? Are you going to continue to trust in me? Are you going to do what pleases me? Regardless of the situation, the proper response to all these things is to trust God above all others, to look to God for hope for the future when all seems dark and dreary, and to praise him both for his deliverance in the past, his present nearness, and his future glorious purposes to be carried out in this world. And so what do we see here from this? God preserves a remnant through judgment. Why judgment? Because of sin. Why a remnant? because he promised not to abandon his people. Why preserving them? For the sake of his name, for his own glory. What, who are those remnant? Those who follow the root of Jesse. Who is the root of Jesse? I think it's clear as we compare the Old Testament and the New Testament that that's Jesus Christ. And what is the proper response for God's people who have been delivered by that perfect ruler of God, who, yes, has come once already as the suffering servant and will return as the righteous king, what is the proper response as we see how God delivered his people in the past, how God will deliver his people in the future, and how God delivers us even now from our threats, which are not so much physical enemies as they are the realities of sin and death, what's the proper response? To praise God for his mercy. Because you and I don't deserve God's mercy. As much as we want to say, I'm not like those Israelites, there's a lot of parallels, if we're honest. But when we turn to God, he offers forgiveness, he delivers us from our sin, he shows us his mercy, and just like the people of Judah would eventually come to see these things, hopefully we have seen a glimpse of them in the ministry of Jesus and in our own experience, so that we see our part in this plan that God is unfolding that started long ago, hundreds, thousands of years ago, and will continue in the future when God continues it until the point at which he finishes it. God preserves a remnant through judgment who follow the root of Jesse as they praise his mercy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, there's a lot of details in this passage that we didn't go into great depth on. I pray that we would consider them further in days to come. 
But I pray that the main points of these passages would be clear to us. Your mercy to sinners, the fact that you will go to any lengths necessary so that we trust only in you and in nothing and no one else, and the fact that you deserve praise for your work in and among us. Lord, may these things be clear from this passage. May we consider where we are at. Are we thinking that things will be different from us than they were from the people of Israel and Judah because we think that we can get away from sin? Help us to see the foolishness and blindness of that. Are we experiencing great difficulty and despairing in the midst of it? Help us to see the hope that you never abandon your people no matter what might be going on. Are we looking over all these things and and thinking in some way they have something to do with us as the people of Judah were in the passage we looked at last week in Isaiah 8? Lord, help that not to be our response, but rather humility and praise and pointing others to the salvation that you bring. Lord, I pray that you would help all of these things to uh, help us to meditate on these things and consider them, that you might be honored as we are amazed at your work and participate fully in it in this week. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.